Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A dot Lawrence Wright grew up in Texas and would later become a conscientious objector as an alternative service to going to war. After spending time in Vietnam and Egypt, Lawrence began his career as a writer, composing numerous articles, books, and even a play. On this episode of the Carlos Watson Show podcast, Lawrence Wright reflects on how he became a writer, his work surrounding Al-Qaeda, and his book, The Plague Year. Larry? Yes. Hey, how are you? Saying, oh, let me let me text this person that I'm supposed to have an appointment with. And sorry, Carlos, I just no problem. I just heard the most beautiful thing, which is I heard that soft Texas accent. <laughs> well, there are other there are other kinds of accents that you might hear in Texas too, Carlos. <laughs> Keep your ears open. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well. I, uh, my favorite uncle lived down the Galveston way, if you know the 45, uh, down the 45 sure. highway from Oakland, yeah. from uh, Houston, all the way down through Texas City. Actually, he wasn't in Galveston, it was a little place called Texas City. And so, famous spot. That's where that horrible uh, ship b- blew up in the late 40s. Right? And, and a friend of mine was, uh, his mother was a nurse in Texas City when that happened. Yeah, Texas City's got a lot of pieces, a lot of interesting pieces. Obviously, the, uh, you know, Pennzoil and all those boys were uh, uh, were around there for a number of years, and um, uh, they also have an interesting football legacy uh, as well down there. And they, they've got a number of legacies uh, down there. And obviously, Galveston, as you know, has got an interesting history. If you uh, if you go back in time, they had a couple of interesting eras uh, to pay attention to. So, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, but, but now, did you grow up in Texas, or did I hear a rumor that you might that, that your blood might have flowed out of Oklahoma at one point? <laughs> That's the truth. I was born in Oklahoma City, and um, my father, uh, after getting out of the army, uh, became a banker, and uh, so he um, we moved to Abilene, Texas, when I was ten, and uh, then to Dallas when I was sixteen. So. 
uh, I always think that, you know, the place you grew up is the place you went to high school. So I always claim Dallas, but uh, it has, there's a history there. Interesting. And now when you say Abilene, that's not where Abilene Christian College is, is it? Yeah. Yeah. I took, uh, I took some piano lessons there. I am. I, I was. A, I was a sports fan growing up. Um, uh, none of my three sisters liked sports, but I did. So my dad turned me into a statistician, and um, and so I knew basically. I was. I, I knew all the stuff that was on the back of cards. And yeah. um, there was a guy, Wilfred Wilfred Montgomery, who played for the Philadelphia Eagles. I don't know if you remember him. He was a running back who played for the Philadelphia Eagles, who was from Abilene Christian, which was, um, uh, believe it or not, sports was a great way to learn geography, to learn about all the different universities. And uh, and so, you know, by the time I was seven or eight years old, I probably knew 50 or 100 universities, including Abilene Christian. Well, that's an obscure piece of knowledge. I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, is French for irrelevant. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. But, uh, but, but, but so how did, so dad was a banker. How'd you become a writer? Yeah, it's a little mysterious. Uh, and it happened to both of my sisters too. But, and I've come up with a theory, which is that our mother was always buried in a book. And uh, she was not the most attentive mother, uh, I have to say. And I think that uh, writing uh, was one way to get her to get her attention. So I, if you're going with the Freudian angle, I would I would try that avenue. But uh, we always, uh, especially in the summers, we'd go to the library, each of us with a cardboard box and just load up with books. And it was, you know, a huge part of my education. I, I just loved prowling through a whole bunch of new books to look through and, uh, you know, very much affected my life, uh, not just in making me become a writer, but, you know, opening horizons that I didn't know were there. That's so funny that you say that, because I grew up in Miami, Florida, or actually the outskirts of Miami, Florida, a little place called Homestead. Um, and there was a library there as well. And it, it for whatever reason, it had a similar allure and uh, summers were spent similarly, and I had three sisters, not two, and um, and we would go there, and we would we would, as you said, pile on the books. But I liked actually going to the library, and there was somehow it was different than my house, and it was different than it was it was kind of just a different space, and it almost had a little bit of um, you remember that thing where the wild things are? Oh yeah, it, it almost had some of the uh, magic and mystery. Of, of that. And so uh, years later, we would have a county fair that had something called the Library Mobile. I don't know if you've ever seen one of these things. Oh, sure. I've, I've checked out books from Library Mobile. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I enjoyed it, too. So it's, it's interesting to hear that some combination of mom and and uh, and country, in this case, library. <laughs> um, well, one time I had to give a speech at the Dallas Library Association, and I said that um, when I was in the eighth grade, I discovered the abnormal psychology shelf in the Lakewood Public Library. And in there, there were books about ESP and so on. There were also books about hypnotism. And uh, and they were going to let me check them out. So I did. And I commenced to hypnotize my sister. And, uh, and I would get her to lie like a board between with her head on a one edge of a chair and feet on the other. And then I stick pins in her. And I said, at that moment, <laughs> I was so grateful to the Dallas public library. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, 
I can't say the library ever taught my sisters how to uh, do um, uh, hypnotism, but they did watch lots of cartoons. And apparently Tom and Jerry and the <laughs> cartoons had this thing about if you were to uh, pour pepper or salt, um, the cartoons used to contend that it would make you sneeze. And so they decided to perform their own version of hypnotism on their brothers. So while he was sleeping, namely me, <laughs> I woke up one time with them with the salt shaker, the pepper shaker over my nose. <laughs> they looked to see whether or not it make me sneeze. And uh, I told them the only thing it was going to make me do is chase them down. So <laughs> they, uh, they decided to exit the building. But uh, but but uh, so your sister woke up, though, and she still walks around healthily. Yeah, today. And, and has forgiven me, um, I think. Uh, <laughs> but uh, that that hypnosis thing went on through college. And I finally decided that I was too irresponsible to be uh, holding people's subconscious in my hands. You know, what a powerful we forget about all of those uh all of the things that books can bring to you, right? Books can uh, can unleash all yeah. sorts of uh, of. Uh, we had a, um, a a slightly more sobering uh, situation. I grew up in Miami in the wild eighties, in the midst of of um, uh, you know Miami was awash in cocaine in those days and various forms. The Miami of Vice era. Miami Vice era. We we earned it. Yeah. Uh, we we earned every bit of it and then some. And. Uh, and I remember one of my classmates, for whatever reason, the local newspaper where your friend Carl Hyacin and others used to work, uh, Dave Barry and others used to work, they, um, uh, they Edna Buchanan, if you remember her, uh, they allowed uh, someone to do a large article basically on how you make crack, <laughs> you make the other drugs, which I never understood how they did. And of course, one of the Smartest kids in my class who was supposedly headed to MIT decided to to to, to practice what they wrote and uh, and that did not work out as well as everybody had hoped. So, uh, well, man, that you know, it's I believe in the free press, you know, but it is dangerous sometimes. Uh, you know, uh, Anarchist Cookbook is a great great example. Of, you know, it shows you how to make all sorts of explosives. And uh, improvised guns and such, and uh, many people have taken advantage of it. Um, so it's a price that you pay for having a free press, but it's, it can be very dangerous. Yeah, yeah, it's a uh, uh, it's a wild, wild world. You know, I was intrigued by all the work you've done in and around Al Qaeda. Um, did you ever find yourself uh, in danger, or I guess as Jack Nicholson would say, grave danger? <laughs> I, I try not to think about it. Um, the, uh, you know, it's, it was those years, it was five years of researching it and writing it. Um, and I spent a lot of that time alone wandering around the Middle East and South Asia. And, uh, and it was uh, during that period of time, right after 9-11, you know, Westerners just disappeared. And so I felt very conspicuous at, at times. On the other hand, I was always well treated, and there were moments when I was, you know, in Pakistan and Afghanistan, I was um, conscious that I would be crazy not to be taking precautions. And in Saudi Arabia, um, I, you know, I, I stayed in a middle class Saudi flat. I didn't stay in a compound, you know. And it, right after I left, it was the Western compounds that were bombed. Uh, I just, you know, I changed my car occasionally, 
you know, I had some advice from some of my contacts in the FBI, but I never really felt in danger as I might now, because back then reporters didn't have a target on their backs. And there's still this presumption of immunity and illusion even then, but still, it, you know, you felt like you're, you know, you had diplomatic status in some ways and you had the freedom to go knock on people's doors. And sometimes there were people that had a reputation, um, but I can't say that I was ever threatened. Uh, and I think if you are fearful, uh, it, it puts you in more danger sometimes. Uh, I think uh, being aware is vital. You have to trust your instincts. Uh, but I wouldn't advise a young reporter to try to retrace my steps right now. Uh, it's, it's a little too edgy. And, and Daniel Pearl, did, did you know him? And, 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 you no, know, he- I have a, a lot of mutual friends who knew Danny. And uh, actually, I'm in a band, and he was too. And I've played some of the clubs that he's he played. But um, he, um, when I got to Pakistan, um, the the first person I met with the afternoon that I got there was Khalid Hawaja, who was a, a complicated figure. Uh, he was close to uh, the jihadists. And he was close to intelligence. Uh, so, but he was a very valuable source. However, uh, Marianne Pearl, Danny's wife, held him responsible for, in part for Danny's death because he was telling people that Danny was a Jew. And, you know, of course, Danny didn't hide that fact. Uh, he made it, you know, he, if people ask, he would tell them. But um, anyway, Khaled... Was, and, and, uh, and, for, and, for, and for those who don't know the story, Daniel Pearl, of course, was a reporter for the Wall Street Journal. This was in the early 2000s in the Middle East, is captured, ultimately beheaded. And, right. Um, By college Sheikh Mohammed, apparently, the guy that planned 9-11. Well, he put me in touch with some great sources in the, in the al-Qaeda community. So I understood exactly why Danny had reached out to him. Uh, but it may have cost him his life. And paradoxically, uh, Khaled also was slain, uh, probably by the Taliban, but who knows? Uh, it's, that was the kind of world that Pakistan and Afghanistan, it, I don't know how much has changed since I've been there, but it was a world where you really didn't know who you were talking to, and that's unsettling. What are the three, two or three most interesting things you learned in covering al-Qaeda and and other jihadists as well. Uh, what are the two or three most interesting things you've learned? I'm now kind of taking a step back because I know that you had an opportunity to come at this from various angles at various times. I know you've talked to a variety of people, but, it, but, but what would you highlight as the two or three most interesting things, whether they go together or not? That, that you that, that you learned in uh, in your well, course of covering one of the one of the things that I learned about the Al Qaeda was the romance of it. Uh, you know there was uh, you know there were these legends like uh, if you die green birds will circle you know your corpse and you will not putrefy and you know of course there's the whole you know forty virgins in in paradise and stuff but there were details about it and. 
I was talking to uh, bin Laden's brother-in-law, Jamal Khalifa, and I, he had been in the jihad against the Soviets. And um, I was kind of not exactly sneering, but being skeptical about this green bird thing. No, 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 I see this. I see this myself. You know, it was uh, an article of faith. I, I can't believe he saw it because I don't think it happened. But I do think that he thought it happened. Um, the other thing, I, Al-Qaeda is, you know, like any community, it has a lot of different personalities in it. And um, Jamal Khalifa, I just mentioned, one of the things that surprised me is I got to be friends with him. He was not in Al-Qaeda, in my opinion. The FBI, CIA had a different opinion. And he was later murdered in Madagascar, I think, by special, U.S. Special Forces. Um, but there was this weird connection. He was, he was Osama bin Laden's best friend, and he became a friend of mine. <laughs> and there was this, it was like a, you know, a connection that I never expected to make with Osama bin Laden, you know. Uh, and I, but it opened up a window on his character that Jamal, who was charming and amusing and self-deprecating and, you know, uh, that that would be his friend. Uh, you know, I'd never really seen bin Laden in that light. The, uh, the first Al-Qaeda member I actually spent any time with uh, in Sudan, uh, you know, bin Laden was in Sudan from 1992 to 1996. He was sort of in exile. And at that time, he bought up all this land. He was probably the largest property owner in the whole country. And uh, it, it turned Al-Qaeda into a kind of farming organization. And uh, I had been pressuring uh, Sudanese intelligence to put me in touch with somebody, you know. And they were willing to give me a little tour. You know, this is bin Laden's house and so on. But um, finally, one day, I was... Uh, in my hotel room. And I have to say, I'd done a lot of traveling and I, my back had gone out and uh, you know, all those international flights and stuff like that. And I was in pain a lot of times. And so I, I took to carrying one of those big balls that you sit on, you know, those sport balls yep. that you substitute for an office chair, right, but you right. know, this is, you have to blow it up. And then you have to unblow it uh, in order to get it on the plane again. And so uh, it was a hassle. Uh, anyway, there was a knock on my door and there was this Sudanese intelligence guy and someone else uh, who he didn't introduce. Uh, and uh, the intelligence guy, his name was Ahmed, uh, presents this figure who's kind of a little portly. And he had this conical Indonesian hat that Muslims wear in Indonesia. And uh, he... Uh, he didn't, you know, since Ahmed was no help, he actually fell asleep on my bed, leaving me alone with <laughs> this guy. And I said, I, you have to tell me who you are. Uh, and he said, you can call me Loe. Okay. Um, and so we started talking about bin Laden and he had been uh, bin Laden's business manager in Sudan. And um, so he had this, sense of humor that was a little goofy uh you know like he would say 
when bin Laden first told him about this idea of creating a Muslim foreign legion, which is what he thought of as what would become Al-Qaeda, Loe said, how are you going to transport them? Air France? And then he'd go, ha, 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 (laughs) slap his knee. And literally slap his knee. So uh, I was amused by him, but I, you know, didn't know what to make of him. But he seemed to know a lot about bin Laden in Sudan and Afghanistan. So I flew back to the U.S. and I started doing a little research on who is Loe. And I came up with Mohammed Loe Bayazid, whose his Al-Qaeda name is uh, 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 Abu Rida al-Suri, and uh, implying that he is Syrian. And um, what I found out was that he was the guy who took the notes when Al-Qaeda was, was found as his handwriting, this sort of like the charter agreement. And I thought, God, I wish I'd known that. So I went back to Khartoum and he wouldn't see me. And uh, that was annoying. And I kept, I wrote him again and again. And finally he agreed to see me. So I went back to Sudan a third time. And I said, Loy, what? It's a lot of trouble <laughs> to travel to Sudan. Why didn't you see me last time? He said, well, I didn't know how seriously to take you. First time we met, you were sitting on a balloon. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my, my introduction to the Al-Qaeda community. It is quite a thing, Larry, that, that, that you have survived that and you were not at greater risk. I mean, I mean, you probably were at great risk, but but you were talking to some fairly lethal people who were. Um, um, it, it was not a certainty that you could do the depth of reporting and have the breadth of conversations, and not end up like some of the people you spoke to. Well, I was on a mission. You know, it, you take your mind back to nine eleven and the the how wounded. The country was and we all were and I was grieving you know and I was angry there were a lot of times when I had a hard time controlling my emotions and I sort of value that I can keep it even keel when I'm talking to people but there were times I just lost it and uh, so I think that that passion crowded out other kinds of emotions like fear um, and but I, as I said, Carlos, I was cautious. Uh, and, you know, the other thing that I have a lot of faith in, maybe sometimes too much, but people want to tell their stories. And, uh, and here comes a sympathetic ear, somebody who's interested. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's very appealing for a lot of people. I mean, I've, I've always mused about why people talk to reporters. You know, sometimes it's a huge mistake. But basically, people believe that their story is interesting and they're, they're doing what's right. If you were in their shoes, you would understand. And so you know, that kind of interview is like changing shoes. You know, you just have a chance to be in somebody's mind. And... Um, in, in that sense, reporters are almost irresistible objects to certain people because everybody they know has already heard all the stories and, uh, you know, they don't want to hear them anymore. And here comes somebody new who's deeply interested. And moreover, uh, they brushed up on all this stuff. And so they know what you're talking about. 
And uh, so I, I think that even with, uh, you know, some of the most dangerous people in the world, they become disarmed in a kind of literal sense uh, when a reporter comes along. As I say, that's probably changed a lot. I've, you know, I've, I've had friends that have been killed, uh, reporters. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's been a, a, a warning shot across the bow of all the reporters in the world. That, you know, it's been such a lethal period for us. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infinity QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. At UC San Diego, we understand that in order to turn the vast unknown into new cures or human connections or expansive culture, you have to be willing to venture further out. That's why we'll go as far as the International Space Station with cancer cells in hand and novel medicines in mind. That's why we map the seemingly randomness of forest fires and connect them with revolutionary AI to see where they'll appear next. And it's why we arrive on the San Diego shore from all over the world to bring different perspectives to our world's biggest challenges. When you push the boundaries of science, art, and culture, whole worlds open up. And at UC San Diego, that's where the real adventure starts. Learn more at ucsd.edu. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com stereo right now. NetSuite.com stereo. NetSuite.com stereo. What was your first reporting gig, your first writing gig? Well, uh, I 
I had been a conscientious objector in Vietnam from Vietnam, and I spent two years in Cairo teaching at the American University. That was alternative service. And I came back to the U.S. and I really wanted to get a you know writing job. And the uh, it's, it's so, funny. It's a little sorry, bit of sorry. A Do you mind if I freeze you for a second? Because I don't know that I've had a conversation before with someone who was a conscientious objector. How did friends and family and classmates treat you both during your time as a conscientious objector and then after it? How are you how are you treated? How are you regarded? Well, Carlos, the main conflict was with my dad. Uh, he was a war hero. He'd been seven years in wartime in World War II in Korea. And uh, I admired him. Greatly. And in fact, I was in ROTC <laughs> before I graduated. Uh, you know, I, but it was a terrible war. It wasn't World War II. It was, it was a needless war. And, and I, it was really clear to me. Uh, and I didn't want to get killed. I didn't want to kill anybody for a cause that I was so opposed to. I didn't have any idea that I would get conscientious objector status. I thought it was really far-fetched. And, you know, the alternatives were go to Canada or go to prison. So, you know, there were, you know, it was pretty dire. And, uh, but I applied in Dallas, Texas for a conscientious objector status. And uh, to my astonishment, they granted it to me. Uh, And I think now they must have had a quota or some sort that you can't absolutely not give anybody, you know. <laughs> so, which would have been their approach in Dallas. Um, but you had to do two years of alternative service. So I, uh, I went to um, New York, uh, thinking that I would go to the UN and they'd give me a job. Uh, it had to be fifty miles from home, and I just wanted to get as far away from home as I could. Uh, it had to be in the service of the United States in some way, and it had to pay very little. So I thought, that sounds like the UN to me. <laughs> so I went and uh, I knocked on their door and they said, no, you know, we don't do that. But there was an institution. They gave me a list of American institutions abroad that might qualify. And so uh, I, uh, one of them had an office across the street at 866 UN Plaza. And uh, so I walked across the street. I didn't know that we didn't have any diplomatic relations with Egypt at the time. I didn't know that there were like scarcely any Americans in the whole country. And the American university had, you know, no Americans there. And uh, so I I walked in and uh, 30 minutes later, they said, can you leave tonight? <laughs> no, I can't leave tonight. I haven't told my parents what I'm doing. I, my girlfriend's back in Boston. I can't leave tonight. Can you leave tomorrow? Yeah, I can go tomorrow. So uh, <laughs> the next day, I flew to Cairo around at midnight, landed nine o'clock in the morning. I taught my first class uh, in English as a second language. And um, my first words, they gave me the very bottom level of achievement. You know, uh, the there were 14 classes ranked in ability, and I got 13 and 14. So I walked into 14, and my first words as a teacher were, 
can anybody here speak English? <laughs> and somebody said, you do. <laughs> so my triumphant entry into the university ranks. That is, uh, that is, uh, and then what about on the flip side? How did, you, you know, because Vietnam was so contentious, and as you said, uh, people went to Canada, people, in other words, in, in other ways, you know, uh, either participated, didn't participate in the war and other sort of things. What, what happened uh, to you on the other side of that, or did it quickly become a non-issue once President Ford? You know, Carlos, uh, back in that day, every man in my generation was conflicted. Uh, I can't say every man was conflicted. I'm sure there were some who uh, believed very strongly in, in, in joining the service and fighting for that cause. That I wasn't in that camp. People who believed as I did were faced with dire choices. And, um, you know, fortunately, I had the a legitimate out. But, you know, the, my family doctor uh, called me aside one time and said, you know, I can find a kidney problem if you want me to. And then my dad took me to lunch with the uh, the National Guard commander in Dallas. And this is where all the Dallas Cowboys went. You know? So, And, uh, you know, they could find me a place. And all that just seemed so dishonorable to me. But I didn't want to go to jail. And I didn't want to go to Canada. And um, the... But I'm telling you this story because there were exits for people like me. And uh, the I had come so close to actually joining the Marines. I mean, it, just, it just sounds ridiculous now that I'm telling you about being a conscientious objector. I went down to the post office to join the Marines in the summer uh, before, the summer before I was going to drop out of school. And um, the... I don't know if you've ever joined the Marines, but uh, there's a ritual if you join any service, at least at that time, you go through this physical and you strip down to your underwear. And so there are all these guys who've been bussed in from, you know, outside the suburbs, you know, out in the farms and stuff like that. They've all been drafted. I haven't been drafted. I am there, you know, with this. <sighs> instinctual longing to replay my father's role somehow. And, uh, but anyway, we're all standing in our underwear and we get into ranks and, you know, you, you, you make a pledge and you take one step forward, you're in. And everybody took that step forward. And I was just standing there thinking, what am I doing? So I put my clothes back on and I went home. And then the next year I'm in Cairo as a conscientious objector and um, my father was in favor of the war. Uh, he was upset with me. Um, and uh, it, it, was a, it was a terrible division between the two of us. It took years to recover from. Um, he represented a different generation and a different point of view. And I, you know, I... I had friends, you know, a fair number of them who did things that I, you know, one friend starved himself to the point that he was no longer, you know, you know, what we, the underground rumor was if you got braces, they wouldn't take you because the army didn't want to pay for it. I mean, there were, there were, if you declared yourself to be homosexual, they wouldn't take you, you know, and I had friends who did that. 
uh, who weren't gay. Uh, so there were there were ways to get out of it, but I'm just really grateful that I had the I was afforded the choice that I did. And had I not gone to Egypt for that two years, I would never have uh, written The Looming Tower. You know, I, I had the only advantage I had over other reporters is I spoke some Arabic. I'd lived in a Muslim country. Uh, I knew something about the religion and, um, and I felt, you know, called upon uh, to, you know, to re replay that period of my life and see what was going on. Larry, how do you, this sounds like a, a big question, but I'm, I'm curious, how do you look back on your life now? Well, that's a valedictory question. <laughs> I, I do see the incoming, Carlos, uh, this implication in your, your question. And uh, so I think about it a lot. Uh, you know, when you fill out a form on the internet, and then he says, what year were you born? And then brrr, <laughs> you know, it just goes down so far. Right, and right. Um, I realized that I, I have lived one, more than one third of the history of the United States of America in my lifetime. And uh, so that's a long time to be around. And I'm always surprised. I guess I'm increasingly surprised by how much I've crammed into my life and how grateful I am for it. You know, I just, I feel, I feel lucky I had to go to Egypt. You know, I feel, I feel lucky that I had those, even I feel lucky I had those fights with my dad. Uh, they, you know, it was, we were both full of passion and we, you know, it was, uh, it was rough, but it was full of intellectual honesty and, you know, everything about that and you know I've been lucky in marriage, uh, lucky in children, lucky in grandchildren, uh, and really lucky in my career. Uh, you know I always wanted to write for the New Yorker, and now I've been writing for the New Yorker for more than a quarter century. Um, I, I've achieved all the things that I wanted to achieve, and yet I'm still hungry, and you know still trying to make it. <laughs> so uh, I, I don't want to think that. My career is over. I've got as much, maybe more hunger now than I did when I was a young man. And why is that? Well, I didn't. I, I didn't feel like I had an audience until I got to the New Yorker. Uh, I had written for a lot of different magazines, and um, and I wrote a you know book that was totally neglected, and I didn't feel successful at all. And then. Uh, finally, I got to the New Yorker and I had uh, a podium and an audience uh, that seemed to respond to my work. But when I got to the New Yorker, I was 45 years old. And at that point, I felt that my career began, you know, that I've been in the vineyards for, you know, 25 years of my life. And um, finally, you know, I, I get this opportunity and I thought, I'm not going to waste this. You know, I'm going to squeeze every bit out of the tube. And, you know, all those years, I mean, there are people that went to the New Yorker right out of school. And, you know, that was true of a lot of magazines in the day. You know, you go to the Harvard, Harvard Crimson, and then you, you go to the New York Times or, or whatever, you know, you, it, there was a stepping stone. And for whatever reason, the stones were a little further apart for me. And, um, uh, and I also, I just didn't understand that world very well. I wasn't, 
I didn't grow up in New York or, or Los Angeles or someplace where those things would be more obvious to me. I, I was, in many respects, a very provincial character. And so what has united the work that you have done? Because I think about the work you've done around Al-Qaeda. I think about the work that you've done around Scientology with Clear, and even the more recent uh, work that you've done, the plague year. You know, I think about all of those different pieces. Does something unite them, or does the thing that unite them is, is the person I'm looking at, Larry Wright, and that's, and that's what unites it? Well, there are themes in my work, and I, not everything is on the same theme. Um, the, uh, I've written a lot about religion. I've, I was pious as a teenager, and so I understand the appeal of religion and how powerful it can be in people's lives. And um, I think it's much more influential in people's lives in politics, for instance, which is, you know, the subject of endless amount of journalism, but religion is, you know, zero status. You know, know, the newspapers would have the religion page on the same page with cooking and stuff, you know, so it was, um, but I, you know, my first book was set in Amish country, and, uh, you know, I've since written about, well, Al-Qaeda, you know, the radical Islam, and uh, I've written about Catholic priests and Southern Baptist preachers and uh, the founder of the Church of Satan. And, you know, I've just, you know, the, a lot of different religions. And, of course, Scientology and uh, Jim Jones. I, all the time, I'm curious about why people believe what they believe. And that is a, a motivating force in my in in my inquiry into the human condition and, and, uh, and, what, and what have you learned about that what have you learned about why people believe what they believe if, if there was one principle that i would take away from it somewhere along the line when i'm interrogating some some of uh, somebody in one of these communities um you know i'd often hear them say well we believe this or that and I had been thinking about what they believed, but then I began to focus on we, we believe, and not I believe, but so often it's we believe. And I realized that what we're talking about is a community. And you, know, you can talk about a community of faith, uh, you know, it's, it's a, a fair term. Sometimes, in order to get into the community, you have to ascribe to these beliefs, some of which are totally preposterous. Uh, you can look at the, you know, Scientology is an excellent example. Mormonism, you know, was the most persecuted sect in America uh, in the 19th century. Uh, and that, that, that wall of disbelief that you have to climb over in order to get onto the other side is, is forms of protective fence. So once you're in the community and you're with all these like-minded people, then you have a sense of solidarity and purpose. And all you have to do is say, I believe it. Uh, What belief is, is a little mysterious. Um, you know, is it, you know, is it just that pledge of allegiance or is it a deep seating seated belief that, you know, Jonah was in the whale or that, uh, you know, 
Zenu created uh, the heavens and earth, you know, 40 billion years ago, or whatever the belief might be. Do you really believe that or you just say so in order to be a part of your community? And I think a lot of that uh, is true. The only other thing I would say about it is that there's a there's an insidious force in I, I, I've, I've seen religions and how they work good in in humanity. Uh, I've seen it be transformative in people's lives. So I, I don't despise it. But I do see the danger of this, what I call piety, because that is a way of ranking belief. And it's a way of achieving power in a community of faith. And it's dangerous because, you know, once you start ranking according to how deeply you believe, you achieve control over other people. And uh, that religion shouldn't go there. But that's when religion turns bad. Hmm. You know, did you ever read the work of Jonathan Kozel? Do you remember Jonathan Kozel? Yeah, yeah, he wrote about children. Wrote about children, and he used to write about religion, religion in low-income communities, and that it made him rethink the atheism, fundamentally, um, or in some cases the agnosticism of some of his um, more formally educated friends and peer set, and that he... uh, he thought he thought freshly about it. So as I hear you talk about religion and what we believe and and belief, it it uh, strikes a number of uh, a number of chords for me. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury, with a reveal unlike any other, as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. At UC San Diego, we understand that in order to turn the vast unknown into new cures or human connections or expansive culture, you have to be willing to venture further out. That's why we'll go as far as the International Space Station with cancer cells in hand and novel medicines in mind. That's why we map the seemingly randomness of forest fires and connect them with revolutionary AI to see where they'll appear next. And it's why we arrive on the San Diego shore from all over the world to bring different perspectives to our world's biggest challenges. When you push the boundaries of science, art, and culture, whole worlds open up. And at UC San Diego, that's where the real adventure starts. Learn more at ucsd.edu. Okay, quick math. 
The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com stereo right now. NetSuite.com stereo. NetSuite.com stereo. What made you write The Plague Year? Uh, and I know that a year prior to that, you'd, you'd written a novel so presciently, um, effectively about a pandemic. But what, what made you write The Plague Year and get it out so quickly? Well, I, initially, I didn't want to write any more about pandemic. I had written that novel the end of October. And um, I should have titled it the middle of April because that's when it came out in 2020 in the midst of this first wave. And, and uh, people thought I was uh, exploiting the, uh, the pandemic as if, you know, this was some kind of sinister publishing plot, you know, um, I, but I, I, I felt like I had said what I wanted to say about pandemics and, uh, and then in June of 2020, David Remnick, the editor of Texas, of, of, of the New Yorker, and Daniel Zaleski, my editor, called me. And David has this idea that, you know, for certain things, you need what he calls the big dumb story. The New Yorker had done lots of wonderful stories about the pandemic, but they were pieces, they were shards the pot itself hadn't been built. And so uh, I I said I'd think about it. Um, of course, big story means something to me because I get paid by the word. So I, <laughs> there was an incentive. But um, I started thinking about what this pandemic has done to our society. And Every aspect of our life has been touched. You know, politics, the economy, race relations, arts, uh, medicine, science. You know, there's just nothing that was untouched by this. And, and that's just broad stroke. You know, people's lives fundamentally wrenchingly changed. You know, the, the amount of isolation, the impoverishment not just financially, but the kind of moral and spiritual community uh, wealth that we rely upon vanishes for a year and a half. And um, so I decided I'd try to write this, but I'd have to, I'd have to find a way to corral it all into one big narrative that made sense. But, you know, I, I mentioned the shards trying to put the pot together. Uh, the, what are the institutions that I would focus on? You know, 
Congress and the White House, uh, Wall Street, uh, the uh, I, Bellevue Hospital I picked because it's, you know, I wanted to write about frontline workers, but Bellevue is the first public hospital in America. It's where the the first ambulances uh, were established, first nursing home, you know, it was just, you know, the uh, nurses, uh, excuse me, education, you know, just everything goes back to to Bellevue. So I, I picked Bellevue, Broadway, uh, and then the ethnic disparities in health outcomes. I, I, I found this, you know, I, within each of these institutions, I wanted to find a, an exemplary character. And uh, one of my frontline workers was, uh, Ebony Hilton, who comes from a community called Little Africa in South Carolina, and uh, must be a remarkable community because it's turned out judges and doctors. And uh, anyway, Ebony is it was uh, she's an anesthesiologist at the University of Virginia Hospital, and she's uh, a great advocate for uh, remedying uh, the health outcomes. And she was a huge informant. But in each case, I tried to find a f- I call them donkeys. It's it sounds disparaging, but a donkey is a beast of burden who can carry a lot of information on his back and take the world and take the reader into a world he's never been in. And so in each of these institutions, I wanted to find a donkey that would take us in there. And if the donkey was sufficiently appealing and intelligent and compassionate, the reader would care about that person. And then all that information I have to glop onto them would become meaningful. And so that was the strategy. And I was unbelievably lucky in, in assembling, casting this, uh, this group of people who were gonna tell their stories. And uh, I, I, there's an element of serendipity in, in this book that I've never experienced before. You are exceptional, I can tell, in identifying either donkeys or whoever the right key characters are and then getting them to talk to you. And and I suspect that that's a part of your secret sauce. Is that is that fair? Well, since you referenced sports, I don't know if you remember Branch Rickey was a famous baseball manager. Oh, sure. I was, I was just thinking about old Branch Rickey yesterday. All right. Well, we, one of his sayings, he had many, uh, luck For, is former the rest- manager of the LA uh, Dodgers or Brooklyn Dodgers, for those who, who, who don't, who don't remember and, and, and famously integrating, uh, uh, major league baseball. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, Branch Rickey said once that, uh, luck is the residue of effort. And so I acknowledge that it was a lot of work to find these people, and I wouldn't have found them uh, if I hadn't been looking for them. But all that said, yeah, I'll give you one example. I, I didn't know anybody in the White House, in the Trump White House, and uh, I needed somebody there, you know, I, and I'm, also I can't travel. I'm in Austin, Texas. I can't get to Washington. And uh, so... Um, I I ran across the name Matt Pottinger, and um, I realized that he, so I looked him up, he was a deputy national security advisor, and I realized that he was um, the son of a friend of a friend, that far away. So I called my friend, 
Uh, and I said, do you think Matt Pottinger would talk to me? And um, I, it was just a shot in the dark, really. The only target I could see. And, uh, well, he, he would. He agreed to talk to me. Well, it turns out, uh, first of all, he was a former reporter himself. He had been, he'd covered, uh, uh, he had covered China for the Wall Street Journal back in the, when SARS broke out in 2002 and 2003. He spoke fluent Mandarin. Uh, his wife was an, had been an epidemiologist at CDC. His brother was a, 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 a virologist at uh, the University of Washington where the first case was diagnosed in, in the US. And, and Matt turned out to be the person who persuaded uh, the White House to stop travel from China and, uh, and later from Europe and to adopt the mass policy. He was critical. And uh, I didn't know any of those things. It later turned out that I, I, I woke up one morning after talking to him and I thought, I know this guy somewhere. And so I called him. I said, Matt, do we know each other? He said, yeah, I came to one of your one man shows and we had dinner afterwards. Oh, <laughs> we did. <laughs> Sorry, I forgot. But all of that is the kind of serendipity that I found you know, totally astonishing. Um, uh, uh, how good a deal has it been being a white man over the last 70 years during your run? How, how good a deal has that been? Well, it's, it's been interesting. It's been an interesting arc because when and, I... And, and by the way, just so you know, because we don't know each other, I don't ask that with any charge or anything loaded. I ask that literally as almost an anthropological curiosity. <laughs> all, uh, I know and, I'm understudy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I ask that almost as an anthropological curiosity. How good a deal is it, has, has it been in your mind as you just watch the different ways that this thing could have played out? And how good a deal has it been to, to be, you know, uh, uh, a white man baby boomer? Well, you know, there was a generational change. I've spoken a lot about my father and, you know, the generation he was a part of. Um, you know, he was a white man, but he he grew up on the Dust Bowl in Kansas. You know, was, everybody in his family, they were wiped out. He was the only survivor in it. Uh, you know, they became alcoholics. His sister became a prostitute. You know, just it was hard scrabble. And he, you know, spent all that time in warfare. And so I don't think that, you know, it would be fair to say that he had, you know, white privilege. He had the privilege of being white, but he otherwise is, you know, everything he scrapped for was so hard. But the expectations were that, you know, he had a place in society. And I was his son and I had, I was, a, you know, I didn't come out of the depression. You know, I didn't, I hadn't had the kind of hardship that he did. Um, and the first time I noticed that there was a bend in the curve <laughs> was when I, I got back from Cairo and I wanted to get a job in a newspaper. And well, it turned out that all the newspaper jobs were filled by young white men just like me. And the newspapers had made a decision. We've got to diversify. 
And so I couldn't get a job anywhere. I couldn't even get appointments, you know, and then I wound up getting a job at the race relations reporter. This is a big paradox, right? I was described as their white writer and I was the only writer, but I had to be described as the white writer because there was the assumption there was a closet full of other people back there. And eventually they hired more people and they diversified too. But that was fascinating to me because as I said, I didn't know any black people except for our weekly maid when I was growing up. I no idea. And, uh, you know, suddenly I was plunged into uh, the civil rights movement and uh, deeply inspired by that. And uh, but I did not feel threatened by it in any any way. Um, and then. uh Along came women's liberation, which was another challenge for the the man side of things. At first, it was really exciting, you know, when bras went away and stuff like that. That was like at that age, you know, it was like thrilling. Uh, And uh, but there was a set of assumptions that women had about uh, about men's role in society, and um, it it. It, it took effect in my household when my wife decided that she wasn't going to cook and wash at the same time. You know, I had to do the dishes and it was, are you kidding me? I, was, I mean, it sounds ridiculous now, but I was so affronted. And, uh, but it was a, a marker, you know, like if I were the British empire, that was like losing India, you know, this is a big, a big change. And uh, so then, then there was when children came along and I was, I wrote a lot about recovered memories and, you know, the daycare center stuff, you know, the, uh, the idea that men were implicitly perverts, this was really shocking to me. Uh, and, and there was a lot of, I mean, I'm not downplaying the the problems of um, sexual perversion and and pedophilia and so on. Uh, I've written about that too. But but to have that looking glass turned on you so strongly, uh, you know, like if you go pick up your child in daycare, you know, may I see an ID? Uh, You don't, you don't remember me from yesterday. I mean, you know, there's this sense of suspicion. Um, I had been Santa Claus at one point, and then it became an issue about children sitting on Santa's lap. Uh, and everything, you know, everything began to get really cloudy. And now it's a really different experience. You know, many things I've wanted to be true in our society, the diversification of society. There is a sense that, uh, that you're, if you're a white man, you're sort of not wanted. And, you know, there's a sense, you know, that, and it's just for your anthropological research, white men talk about this all the time, you know, uh, and fellow writers uh, of my age feel grateful that we had the career we had because, you know, there might not have been enough room for us. And I know that's exactly the feeling that people in minorities felt all along. So, you know, there's, uh, there's a sense of comeuppance that I acknowledge, uh, but there's also a sense of, 
that it's, it's been a strange journey, to be frank, Carlos. You know, uh, think people think uh, it's time for, uh, you know, a change. But when they say that, that means it's, it's time for us to get off the stage. And uh, so, but I, at the same time, I want to live as full a life as I possibly can. And I, I wish that for everyone. So, you know, it's, I don't like the win-lose situation that so many of us feel that we're in right now. It, it is such an interesting time, and I think it's such an interesting conversation. And I remember being in South Africa in 1995, so shortly after Mandela was not only was freed, but then elected uh, president of the country in 94, and apartheid began to move. And it was even people's ability to talk about it was, uh, was, was an interesting one on different sides. And I think that, um, and I don't know that we can all do this. I know you said even you and your father, it wasn't always easy having conversations about things that matter to both of you. Um, but but I, I, I think that there's a, it, it, it'll be interesting Larry. I think, I think there, there is a, a, a national, even know what the right framing of it is, but there's a, there is probably a need, if it can happen, if it can happen, there's a need for an honest set of retellings and oral histories and a little bit of what you just did, but heard from a variety of different people who are part of the story. So the woman who was your weekly maid, hearing her journey, that could be interesting. Um, the story of uh, the person who said, can you go tonight to... Uh, to, to Cairo. I don't even know who that was, but that'd be interesting. You know, uh, he turned you, out to be a CIA agent. <laughs> always does. <laughs> I, there were many things that we learned uh, in that journey. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, to hear your wife tell the story, that would be interesting to hear her narrate uh, uh, the story. Uh, yeah. She, she has an interesting story. She grew up in Mobile, Alabama. And, um, uh, they lived on a, an estuary called Dog River, and uh, she would sit out on the dock and catch her breakfast. And, but they, they had a maid, uh, Rosina, who would row to work because she lived up the river a little bit. And, you know, and that was the person who really raised Roberta. Uh, her parents were alcoholics and not reliable. And uh, so, you know, that, that story has been told before. But that intersection that was so deeply meaningful to Roberta um, that, you know, it's, I guess what we're both leaning into is that the complexity is more interesting than the, uh, than the, than the, than the, the black and white narrative that has been created. It's always changing, but what gets lost is, is the, are the nuances that make it so human. Uh, Larry, doggone it, if they're not telling me, I have to leave it there. But, you know, I'm only going to leave it there in this spirit. This is part one of many parts. And, oh, I look uh, forward to talking to you again, Carlos. That'd be fun. Yeah, yeah. I might even ask you to do it over a meal as long as you remember me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd be happy to do that. You give me the invitation. We'll see if we can arrange to be in the same town. I love it. I love it. Well, listen, I am uh, I'm grateful for your work and appreciative of your time and and uh, look forward to seeing you again soon. My, me too. Thank you, Carlos. Okay, be Thank safe. You. Be well. 
you for listening to this episode of the Carlos Watson Show podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcast. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome.